0: In the year 1925, the political landscape of Europe was shifting. Uh, The First World War had ended just a few years earlier, and because of that, in a lot of continental Europe, there was a vacuum of power. And you see the rise of a number of fascist regimes uh, and the rise of communism in the Soviet Union. In addition, during this time, you begin to see the rise of a number of charismatic, political figures uh, in whom millions were putting their trust. These men were going to make things better. So you have Stalin and the Soviet Union. Lenin had died in 1924. So in 1925, Stalin begins to have uh, some more freedom of of maneuver to begin to consolidate his power there. Uh, In 1925, Mussolini is acclaimed dictator of Italy. And in that same year, Hitler writes Mein Mein Kampf, which outlines his political ideology and his hope and plan for Nazi Germany. Now, in that same year, 1925, Pope Pius XI, in direct response to what's happening in Europe and in direct response to these political figures, he creates and institutes a new Christian feast, for the church to celebrate, and that is Christ the King. And he tells the church on this day to proclaim that the church bows only to Jesus, that the church will not give authority to any person, principality, or power that claims to be absolutely sovereign. It's a day to proclaim that Christ is King over all, over Mussolini, over Stalin, over Hitler, over anyone who claims to be king. And so since that time, now I guess almost 100 years, the Roman Catholic Church has observed this feast, and a number of other churches, Protestant denominations, have also adopted this celebration, including the Episcopal Church, because it is so important to proclaim and to remember Christ is king. You know, following a king, there is something deep within us that wants to follow a king. When you look at uh, the great legends of human history, so many of those legends go like this. They say there once was a king, a great king, And this king, he he ruled with wisdom and justice and compassion. And when this king was on the throne, the land flourished. Everything flourished. Relationships flourished. The arts flourished. Civilization flourished. It was a golden age for us. But something, something has taken the king away. And because the king is gone, everything has fallen apart. The land has deteriorated. And so we look, we wait for the day that the king will come back because the king will return. It's really astonishing how many legends follow this pattern. You have the the Robin Hood legend where good King Richard Has left England. And so now Robin Hood is keeping the flame alive until King Richard returns. You have the great Arthur stories in Camelot. When Arthur ruled, everything flourished. But now Arthur is gone. And supposedly on his tombstone it reads, Here lies Arthur Rex Quandum Rex Futris, meaning the once and future king not just the once king but the future king you see that's a critical aspect of all of these legends that the great king will return there's a danish legend follows the same pattern about the mighty warrior holger the dane he will return one day In Serbia, you have a legend about Prince Marco. He ruled in the 14th century. One day, it is said, he will return when his people need him. There's a legend about Frederick I, who ruled the Holy Roman Empire, died in the Third Crusade. Again, it is said, he will return one day. In Wales, a legend of a Welsh lord, Owen Lagoc. It is said, he will return when Wales truly needs him. You even have uh, the modern legend, The Lord of the Rings, one of the most successful stories of the 20th century, written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And behind this story is the idea that there is a true king in the north. And one day, again, he will return. And when he does, a golden age will ensue. On and on it goes, these legends about a king returning. And the question is, why do we have this longing, these legends about the returning of a great king when the actual record of human kings is pretty abysmal? It's not that great. It's full of tyranny and tragedy. You give somebody unrestrained power, and generally it does not work out that well. We know that. That's why almost every monarchy in the world has been toppled. We didn't want to deal with kings. And the kings or royalty that still exists, their power has been stripped from them. And yet, we are still fascinated by kings. The old legends still speak to us. And we're obsessed in the U.S. with the the British monarchy. Why is it that the crown has been one of the most popular TV shows in the last few years. And in fact, one of the things that we do in the U.S. because we don't have kings, is we crown kings. We take athletes or billionaires or media stars and we turn them into kings. We crown them. They they hold court. We adore them. We are constantly... Giving ourselves over to the power of dynamic and charismatic figures. And so, again, the question is why? Why do we do this? And the answer is because we need a king. We need a king. We were built for a king, God was supposed to be our king. But as we know, and as the early chapters of the scriptures tell us, we didn't want God to be our king. We turned away from God. And you see, the reason for these myths, these legends, the reason why we are constantly seeking someone to adore is because there is this memory in the human race. There's a memory in in you and in me of a great king, an ancient king one who did rule with power and wisdom with justice and compassion and we know deep down that we were built to submit to that king we were built to serve that king and to adore that king that's what the bible says it says that there is a true king that stands above all the kings of the earth and that king is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Our gospel reading today, it comes from John's gospel, and in it, Jesus talks about His kingship. Jesus, He is sitting before Pilate. Uh, Jesus is on on trial uh, before Pilate. And it's important to recognize that Pilate, as the Roman governor of Judea, that in that moment, in that encounter, he represented the most powerful king in the world. He represented Caesar. There was no one more powerful than Caesar. Caesar truly was a king of kings. He ruled kings. So Jesus is sitting before Pilate, and he's there because the Jewish leadership have brought uh, Jesus before Pilate, because the Jewish leadership, they want Jesus dead. And they're hoping Pilate will bless this and will execute Jesus. In fact, in the next chapter, Pilate brags to Jesus about his power and authority. And he says to him, do you not understand that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Now in our passage, Jesus has just come before Pilate. And Pilate, the first question he asks of Jesus is, he says, are you a king? Are you a king of the Jews? And and the first thing I'll mention here, uh, before we look at how Jesus responds, is notice just the sheer majesty of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, he is not, he is not, in awe of Pilate at all. When you read this, there is no sense that Jesus is on trial. In fact, it looks the opposite. When Pilate faces Jesus, it's not Jesus on trial, it's Pilate who's on trial. Jesus seems to have the power and authority. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And before Jesus answers answers him, Jesus is curious about if Pilate discerned this on his own, or has this been told him by another? And Pilate responds, well, you've been accused of this by the Jewish leadership. And so then Jesus responds to the question. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not from here. So right there, Jesus claims to be a king. And notice, he does not say, my kingdom is not of this world. No, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is from God. And so that means his kingdom is different than all the earthly kingdoms that we build and create. Jesus' kingdom is different, and we know that. Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of the cross. It's a kingdom based on sacrificial love, not based on power or greed or even on some type of ideology. His kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness, of grace. It's completely opposite from the kingdoms of this world. It is not from this world. But it is for this world, because this kingdom, according to Jesus, this is how the world was meant to be. This is what God created the world to be like. And then Jesus, building on this idea, he says that if my kingdom were from this world, well, then my disciples, they would fight for me. But of course, they don't, because the kingdom is different. And then Jesus ends by saying this, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. He's hearkening back to the incarnation. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Again, this kingdom, it doesn't win people by force. No, it wins them with the truth. Jesus says that those who belong to the truth, and that's that's an interesting phrase. What does it mean to belong to the truth? But he says, if you belong to the truth, you will recognize what I say as true, and you will recognize me as the true king that has returned. In a famous article of a theologian named Robert Jensen, he argues that our culture is in crisis because, and this is his quote, he says, our culture is in crisis because the modern world has lost its story. We have lost our story. He says, we once thought that life had a purpose, that there was something to live for. And that there was hope for a resolution to the sufferings of this world. But he says now many people, if not most people, don't believe this to be true. The world has lost its story. And yet even though we have lost our story, we are still built to follow a king. And so we, we give ourselves again and again to politicians, to media stars, to charismatic teachers, even charismatic religious figures, because we think that person is going to solve my problems. That person is going to make my life better. We adore them. And so one of the fundamental questions that we always ask ourselves as Christians, but especially we do this today, is we ask, what king do I follow? And what story am I a part of if I am part of a story? You see, we as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the great king, that he created all of this in love. And we believe that he has the power and the authority to see his vision for the world realized. He has the power to undo everything that has brought harm to this creation. In his love, his his deep love for us, he came to accomplish what we can't accomplish. To do this, he had to die for us and die for his kingdom. But three days later, he rose again. And one day, he will come back to usher in a renewed creation. Jesus is our king. That's what we believe. And as our king, he calls us to follow him, to obey him, not just to consult him on matters, but to actually obey him and to work for his kingdom. That's the really exciting thing that we get to do. We get to share about him, we get to care for people in need, we get to fight for justice, we get to announce mercy and forgiveness. We get to be the church and do the work of the kingdom. And we can do this because we know who is in charge. We know who the boss is ultimately and whose realm this truly is. Christ the King. That's what we come to remember and to proclaim and to celebrate today the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.